Welcome to Behavior Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Given the strange and turbulent times that we are living through, Kurt and I decided to reach out to some of our favorite behavioral science researchers and practitioners to get their take on the novel coronavirus pandemic that is shaking the world. These special edition episodes will explore a variety of different aspects of the crisis and our response to each of those aspects through a behavioral lens. We know that you may feel overwhelmed by the crisis already. It seems every news story, every social media thread, every phone conversation that we have is focused on some aspect of the pandemic right now. While the news and updated information are essential, we're going to take a different tact. We want to try to understand the science behind our reactions and our behaviors and how science can help us cope and move beyond the current crisis. In each episode, we talk with a different behavioral science expert and get their best thinking on an aspect of the crisis. So sit back, take a deep breath, and listen to our special series on behavioral science and the coronavirus pandemic. Elizabeth Gilbert is the head of research at Psychology Compass, a content platform that uses insights from psychology and neuroscience to teach people how to be happier and more productive. She has a PhD in social psychology from the University of Virginia and a postdoctoral fellowship at the Medical University of South Carolina. We are happy to have her on the show. Elizabeth, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. We are so glad to have you here. You sound great, by the way. Thank you. I'm feeling pretty good. My, uh, you know, in case people are listening in the future, it's COVID time, and my kids started back in daycare this week. So, oh, I, I am, uh, I'm very happy. <laughs> so, so it was a, it's been a trying time having all the kids at home, huh? Oh my gosh, yes. I mean, I'm not unique in that sense, um, but it's, uh, I mean, it's taught me a lot about uh, how much I appreciate my caretakers and daycare and. All of those things that we normally take for granted. I know. I think there's been the the meme around how much we need to pay teachers once yes. this is done just because of the understanding of what they have to go through every day as we yes. lived it. Oh, well, so, yeah. So your work, your work is um, crosses a wide variety of topics, which I love that your research and, and the kind of work that you do is certainly all about social psychology, but you've, you've crossed a lot of things. Could, could we talk, so we want, might want to talk about self-regulation. We might sure. want to talk about decision-making, goal setting, all kinds of really wonderful things. But could you start with from where you're at right now, mental well-being? How are you as a mom dealing with this? And oh. what are you seeing the, the, the work that you're doing at, uh, impacting people? Sure. It's kind of interesting. So we're in what, week six or seven now at least? Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's been a change over time, uh, at least in my personal experience. And I think from seeing the people around me, it started with a little bit of, uh, I don't want to say panic, but you know, extreme anxiety and uncertainty. Um, and I think over time, we're seeing a little bit more division between groups of people um, so maybe whereas the whole, I don't know, United States or mm -hmm. uh, was sort of in this together at the beginning, I feel like uh, people are starting, some of them to get back to normal. Some of them, I think, are even having a little bit of fatigue and um, frustration with the people who are still anxious. Um, and then, of course, there are people who are still very anxious. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's kind of interesting to see the different ways that people are coping over time and how it's changing over time. Um, I personally am in a much better spot than I was two months ago. 
Um, I don't know why, if that's why is that? Why, why do know, you think that is? Oh gosh, psychologically, and I I'm curious to hear others input on this too. I think on a certain amount, it's just people have a wonderful sort of psychological immune system, right? Mm-hmm. Um, people, I even think you guys have talked about this before. People people get back to normal eventually. Um, uh, they learn how to deal with changes and, and change is scary, especially when it's uncertain and we've not seen something like it before and we catastrophize. But then at some point you just start to learn that you can handle this. You know, you wake up day in and day out, you begin hopefully to start some new routines and to learn a little bit of a new normal. Yeah. Yeah. We, we are adaptable creatures, yeah. right? We are very adaptable. And those routines that we pick up all of a sudden start to feel more normal. They were really weird to begin with. And now uh, we've been doing it for five, six weeks. And that's ah, what I've always done, right? Isn't, I, yeah. I don't even remember <laughs> what we used to do back yeah. pre having to get up and not go anywhere for the rest of the day. Um, mm-hmm. All of those factors. So you had uh, an article in Psychology Today. And, and I want to get this because you talked about anxiety and stress, right? Yes. Uh, and and in that, you are quoted, It's uh, you're talking about instead of trying to ignore them when you're talking, uh, uh, take some time to intentionally imagine your worst fears happening. Um, so uh, how in the world <laughs> is imagining your worst fears yes. a good thing to do? Help us understand that. Yes, those. absolutely. So... Um, The idea for this piece actually came from my time working at the Medical University of South Carolina in a lab that worked with people who had PTSD from really horrible events. Um, Lots of just horrific military events, um, you know, personal traumas in their life. And as you can imagine, when somebody's been through something horrible, oftentimes they want to just forget it and really try to bottle it up and hide it. And these people with PTSD, that just doesn't work. They get flashbacks. Um, they have nightmares. They, you know, have problems going out in public often. This bottling it up just doesn't seem to work. Uh, so this lab uh, did a therapy um, that's actually been around for decades now called imaginal exposure, where they would work with these people who had PTSD to basically desensitize them to their trauma by walking them through it over and over and over again. Um, And it's not necessarily that, you know, you call somebody into the lab and on day one of their therapy, you say, okay, tell me all about your trauma. Let's go through it in horrific detail, right? You might start with something a little smaller, like something else that scares them. But over time, you work up to having them really walk through their trauma over and over and over again over the course of weeks. And eventually they begin to learn that they can handle this trauma, right? They're stronger than maybe they thought they were. Um, They can even come up with, you know, solutions for next time if they get um, an intrusive thought or a nightmare about their trauma, how they can handle it. Um, And just the same way that, you know, somebody might get over their fear of spiders by just sort of slowly being introduced to spiders People can get over their their bigger fears um, in, in a similar fashion by just sort of being exposed to it and learning that they are strong and they can get through this. How is it that the intuitive version of avoidance isn't as effective? I think, you know, there are some things that just 
stick with us. Um, and if you avoid something, that means you aren't giving yourself the time to address it. Mm. By avoiding it, it maintains its control over you, right? You're always sort of running from it or trying to, to get away from it. And by actively taking it on, you're giving yourself a sense of efficacy, a sense of control over it. You're sort of teaching yourself that this thing doesn't control me. With a little bit of practice and work, I can begin to control this this thing. And it is a part of my life, right? Mm. I can't just hide about COVID. Like it really does affect me on a daily basis. I have to take precautions. I am scared. My husband works in an emergency department. I'm scared every time he goes in. Mm. But I'm slowly learning that I'm strong enough to deal with that. Yeah. Well, and don't think of the the, the pink elephant, right? So, yes. Yeah, oh, that's know. brilliant. Yes. So when you, you're trying to suppress things, the, the the natural tendency for our brain is to actually go and figure out, well, well all right, what, what was that? So, um, you know, those yeah. are always key pieces of this. So, so I'm hearing that there's an aspect of what we talked about before, this adaptability by, by facing our fears and kind of imagining them. It's almost like we're living through them and we're, we're becoming more accustomed to them. They become more... Uh, commonplace where, where they don't have as much vividness and control over ourselves. And then exactly. we can reframe them. And so yes. by reframing them, uh, we can take some of the the fear and anxiety out of that. And actually, as you said, have some self-efficacy and some control in that situation. So given the, the state that we're in, and as you talked about at the very beginning, we're getting these people that are kind of branching off into different areas of where they are, right? Some are feeling I'm over this, I'm done, I'm fatigued of staying inside, I just wanna get back out and it's not that scary anyway and they're looking for evidence to support that versus people who are still scared and they're finding the evidence to support the the reasons why I know everybody should stay inside and wear masks and not touch anything. Uh, how do we deal with that discre discrepancy between these people and and, the different perceptions that they have on this, or is there anything that we can do at all? Oh gosh, that's a big question. I wish I, I wish I knew a simple answer. And of course, it's it's probably worse now than it's ever been with the variety of media and people being able to to find the evidence that supports their pre existing desires or beliefs. Um, gosh, you know, I I can imagine that some. I mean, and part of this is going to come from what you also believe is the right answer, right? Yeah. So so I can say, I mean, arguably you could say maybe it's good that we have these varying beliefs. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's definitely some, some research and decision-making that says, you know, listening to all points of view, disparate points of view can actually help the whole group come to a better decision. On the other hand, if you, um, maybe you decide that you want to sort of defer to the experts and- yep that people still should be taking lots of precautions. And, and if we're going to go back and sort of get back to normal, we should do it very slowly and with lots of caution. If you're going to assume that's the truth, um, then I think we should be working on messaging that sort of gets people accurate information, yeah. right? Whatever that, that might be. Um, Oh, uh, and to get people accurate information and to make them receptive to that information, right? Um, so one thing I've actually thought about 
is with mask wearing. Yeah. And there seems to be a growing scientific consensus that it's a good, helpful thing. It's not perfect, but it helps. Mm-hmm. And yet I walk out, I went to Lowe's for the first time over the weekend, less than half of people were wearing masks. Mm-hmm. And so I, I got to thinking, you know, let's assume that mask wearing is a good thing. And I think the, the growing scientific uh, evidence suggests it is a good thing. How can we get people to wear masks, right? I'm guessing that what's happening is it's a lot of younger men. They probably rationally believe that they're not at a high risk group. And it's probably not the most macho, mm-hmm. shall I say, <laughs> thing. Yeah. It's not the sexiest thing to be wearing a mask as a younger man, right? Uh, maybe it even signals to people or you fear that it signals to people that you're scared or weak and that's not what your average young man wants to project. Um, and it turns out uh, that this problem also happened 100 years ago with the Spanish flu. Okay. Uh, I, and I just, uh, you know, just sort of on a whim was looking up this, what is going on with mask wearing differences. And they had the same issue a hundred years ago where in general, women and older people were willing to wear masks, but younger men, um, which are a very important demographic, right? They're out there, they're doing a lot of, of work. They're, you know, big piece of our population weren't wearing masks. And so they reframed it as a, not about sort of being scared of the flu, but about a, um, but about doing what's right for your country and sort of ah. making reframing mask wearing to be about sort of sacrificing for your country, right? And that I think it seems hit a nerve with a lot of men at the time, and probably um, the same sort of feelings that would inspire a young man maybe to go serve in the military, yeah. right? Um, this is about you know, standing up for what's right. And it is in fact sort of a, um, a masculine ethical thing to wear a mask. It worked then. I wonder if it could work now. (laughs) Well, it reminds me, it reminds me of the, the work that they did on reducing, uh, littering in Texas, right. Where they tried all of these things about don't litter, do all the, you know, all the good that it's going to do. And what ended up working was the, the, the tagline, don't mess with Texas. Yes. Because it became this uh, identity of a Texan and you don't mess with Texas. And yes. if you litter, now you're messing with it. So there's, there is that idea of reframing that I think can be, have a really positive impact, again, on the factual information as we know it. The, the hard part, and Tim and I just did a, a, a weekly grooves on this, is the idea that within a, a pandemic like this, within any type of crisis that is in fluid, uh, it, it, it's constantly changing, is that the science itself sometimes changes. And that's one of the harder parts of trying yes. to communicate this because what you said two weeks ago, now you got further, you know, at the beginning of this, it was don't wear masks because masks right. need, are needed for the the health workers and they don't actually help you that much anyway. So, you know, the message has changed and shifted. And so, again, going back to the part of, uh, you know, the, the differing viewpoints on this. And I, I loved how you mentioned this idea that in decision making, we can oftentimes if we take that bigger picture view and look at alternative pieces, we can get uh, to a better decision. And I think that's actually the case here because I think, you know, 
going too side too far on one side versus too too far on the other side isn't helpful in the long run and it's just going to to exacerbate everything so um right and that and that is tricky right i think mm-hmm. um there's a lot of bad information out there and another you know another finding from decision making research is if you overvalue bad information <laughs> unsurprisingly <laughs> that does not help your decision making. So part of decision making is sort of making sure that the information you call or the information you get is cold, right? It's good information. It's, um, and you're not overvaluing or even equally valuing all information, but you really are hopefully valuing the best information, maybe the most scientific information, the, um, you know, any insights on how we can get people to do that? Because uh, I, I have conversations with uh, relatives uh, all, all too often uh, that are big conspiracy theorists, and uh, mm-hmm. they're really good at moving the goalpost and and the what about uh, kinds of things. Uh, so, do you have any tips oh for how we can have a constructive conversation with with someone who is uh, eschewing good uh, sources? Yeah. Oh, that's tough. Um, And I think that big, scary problems like this are, seem to be really, uh, to lend themselves towards conspiracy theories. That's that, that, you know, finding that big, big issues deserve big, big, you know, solutions, I suppose. And so people are looking for, there must be something, some huge reason for this that's out of the norm, right? It's not just a virus happened and it, and it caught off. There must be something else really big happening behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, I wonder if part of it is just acknowledging to those people like, holy cow, this is really bizarre and big. And it makes sense that you would think there must be some big, bizarre reason behind it. But I, but (laughs) actually have you seen this, you know, finding on exponential growth? (laughs) It also explains this and you don't have to jump through as many hoops and, and sort of go, go that far out of the norm to explain what's happened. Um, So maybe that's one way to sort of, you know, empathize with them a little bit um, before you provide them new information we we talk a lot about Hanlon's razor on on the show. You know, don't don't attribute to malice what you can is yes. easier attributed to. Stupidity. Yeah, and, and, but yes. I also the stupidity, right? But I think there's also the the Oscom's razor here, which is right. It's it's like go with the simplest answer, right? This mm-hmm. is not about as you said. You you have to jump through so many hoops on some of these conspiracy theories when. Yeah, no, the virus actually just came through natural transmission as opposed to being, you know, manufactured in a in a lab that was in China that now they released it on their own people to kill their own people first and how somehow mm-hmm. that's going to then transmit across the entire globe and kill, you know, hundreds of thousands of people just to get at the United States. Uh, it, 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 you know, you have to, you have to do a bunch of mental hurdles in order mm-hmm. to get that versus the, the simpler explanation, which is often the, the better explanation mm-hmm. in, in some of these things. Elizabeth, you write a lot about lists. I'm going to bring us back here too. Topical. <laughs> <laughs> You write a lot about lists, and uh, what is it in these stressful times might help us? But what, how might lists help us kind of get through this time? Oh gosh, I do love lists. 
what it does is it helps us again feel a sense of control right this is a time when people are anxious um they are missing out on a lot of the things that would normally give meaning and control to their lives whether it's having good relationships going to church just having their normal routine um and lists i think help give you that sense of of coming down to like the important nuggets of life you know what is the important things for me to work on today or this week um it, it basically focuses you in a way that your life might not be supporting right now right you don't have sort of the architecture of your life guiding you but you can hopefully sit down and and um and focus on what is most important to you right now and and let's help you pull out those nuggets, I think. And and you get to check them off, right? Yes. I mean, that's the best part of a list yes. is like, ah, done. And, mm -hmm. and so you feel like you've made some progress during the day, yes. particularly in times like this where every day kind of melds into the next day, into the next day. And you kind of look back and you're going, was that Tuesday? Or actually, what day is today? And when did I do that? Yeah. Did I do that Tuesday? Did I do Monday? Or was that even last week? I don't know. And having that list and checking things off, I, I think provides that sense of accomplishment that, that, hey, I've actually done some things and here's what I've done. And I can look back on that and say, yeah, did Absolutely. that. I feel good today. Absolutely. So, so are there any types of lists that you think are more helpful right now? I mean, it sounds like you're just kind of talking about mundane things. Yeah. One of the benefits that I've, I've seen during this is it's given some people the chance to sort of reevaluate. <laughs> mm. um, so most of our days are kind of prescripted. Oftentimes we do the same routines. Um, like I mentioned earlier, we have this sort of choice architecture built into our lives that guides, guides our, us on a daily basis in normal times. And this crisis has disrupted that. And that is really unsettling, but I think it's also an opportunity to step back and get out of our status quo and reevaluate our lives. Hmm. For me personally, um, it's been a chance to sort of say, okay, I used to have, you know, maybe nine working hours every day. Um, while my kids were at daycare and I had my normal routines. And now I really only have maybe three or four working hours a day, right? So this is a chance for me to sit back and say, what is most important? Mm. Um, what are my most important values? I need to cut cut the the stuff that I would normally kind of do because it's maybe just a routine or kind of important or I feel that urgency to respond to a bunch of emails. And it forces me to step back and say, what's really, truly important? Okay, I want to make sure I get at least this amount of good quality time with my family every day. I want to make sure I get at least a little bit of time for exercise, right? To take the, the fourth walk around the neighborhood. <laughs> I want... Um, you know, and these work things are what's most important to me. Um, keeping up on, you know, the, the literature that I find most important or writing something every day for an hour. And that has been, to me, sort of an unexpected, lovely benefit of all of this is it's forced me to reevaluate what is most important to me. 
And in some sense to say, this is like an opportunity to start fresh. I think it's interesting that the way you you started framing that was you talked about family first, and then you talked about your health, and then you talked about work. And I don't know if that was preconceived or if that if that just kind of emerged naturally. I thought that's an interesting yeah. frame, right? That just the way that you talked about it. And I don't know that I would have put it in that order six months ago when things were more normal. Huh. You know, six months ago, I probably would have started with, well, I spend most of my time during work, so let's focus on that. And then I get, you know, from five until eight every night is family. So maybe that's number two. And then a couple times a week I exercise. So that must be number three. <laughs> but having this step back has, has really got me to to sort of reevaluate where do I want to be spending my my limited time. Yeah. We talked with Wendy Wood and she talked about this is an opportunity for a uh, huge fresh start yes. from everybody. And and again, she does a lot of work on habits and and rituals and all the the routines that we have in our life. And and we go through those often automatically without thinking about them, without contemplating them. And as you just mentioned, and I think it's a very salient point in all of this, this provides us this super shift that we actually have to re reevaluate in many instances because we are thrown out of that normalcy. We're thrown out of our daily habits that we typically have done in the past. And so if you frame that mindset of how can I learn from this? How can I grow from this? What can I take away from this? I think people can come out of this much stronger with a much better semblance of what is important. And I think that you you frame that really well. So thank you for that. Oh, and we also... We've heard some surprising things when talking to Mariel Beasley from the Common Sense Lab at Duke. You know, she's talking about how lower to middle income people are actually saving more for short term issues. Like they're they're changing their habits to reduce debt, to pay down credit card debt, and increase savings uh, in a time that is completely counterintuitive for that to happen. Oh wow, um, that's wonderful. You know, if it even if it is. You know, I wouldn't wish a crisis on anyone, but if it has those sorts of of eventual benefits, that's that's pretty wonderful. I I even sometimes wonder if that's particularly relevant to the younger generation. Mm. Um, you know, growing up, um, my all my grandparents grew up sort of at the tail end of the depression, and we always talked about how that influenced them the whole rest of their life, right? Um, like my grandmother did not throw anything away. Everything was reused a million times and very frugal. And I, I wonder if maybe some of the the habits and that we pick up now might might benefit us for a very long time with any luck. Yeah. No, I think there's, there's some really uh, salient points to that. We, we do, we've talked about that, Tim and I have talked about that uh, multiple times. Is, is this a big enough shift in our social norms and our daily routines that this will have long, long lasting effects like the the Great Depression did? Or will it be a 9-11 type thing where, yeah, there were some immediate changes, but for the most part, we went back to uh, some normalcy after that outside of, you know, taking our shoes off in the airport. Um, <laughs> but you, you, you also write a lot on, on anxiety and stress and different pieces around that. Given this time frame, Obviously, there's some reframing that we can do and reassessment and reevaluation 
of, of things, but still people are going through stress. So what are some of the things that we could do to help alleviate and, and manage that stress uh, and anxiety in this time? Sure. Um, well, a couple of the most important things to people, regardless of whether there's craziness going on like COVID, is social relationships, right? Mm-hmm. And those have been hard hit in some ways by COVID. Uh, you can't just go out and have dinner with your friends. You don't see your colleagues at work like you normally would. Um, I can't even talk to my neighbor without standing six plus feet away from her. Um, but finding some way to ensure you get that social interaction on a regular basis, I think is very important, even for introverts. I've heard you know, some of my introvert friends joke that this is a blessing to them, but they're also texting me all the time. I think yeah. even introverts <laughs> um, you know, need some social interaction. So figuring out how to get that in, whether it's you know just texting your friends on a daily basis to check in. I don't think I've ever talked to my mother as much as I have in the last six weeks. Um, talking to your partner, somehow getting that social interaction, even if it means you know you do it on the phone. Another you know main, Uh, I think driver that people have that makes them happy is a sense of um, accomplishment and meaning in their work. Um, So a lot of my happiness research isn't just about the sort of hedonic happiness that most Westerners think of, right? Not just Mm -hmm. laughing out loud and, and having fun, high energy sort of happiness, but also having that meaning and that purpose in what you do on a daily basis. Um, I've seen a surprising growth in articles about gardening lately, it seems. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's one way people are getting sort of a sense of meaning and, and enjoyment about making something grow. Um, but there are other ways, of course, um, that people find meaning, whether it's through reading or volunteering. One thing that my, my church did, because we couldn't meet as person, is we made all of our toddlers write cards to the, to the older people in the church. And that was not particularly fun for me, dealing, you know, getting my, my two-year-old to, to paint without destroying our house. But at the end of the day, I felt really good about that, you know? So finding something that gives you a little sense of meaning and purpose um, every day, I think, is, is really important. Um, and then another thing that I've thought of is there's some really new research uh, led by Shigeo Ishii, um, who's this wonderful uh, well-being researcher uh, at the University of Virginia and now Columbia, who's started to um, understand the importance of psychological richness as, as a facet of well-being. So in addition to just sort of the hedonic happiness and the meaning part of happiness, he's studying this richness component. And what that is all about is basically having a life that's filled with various um, experiences that just sort of make us think and make us reevaluate. And these don't have to be positive things is, is his neat contribution, right? It can be things like struggling to find yourself or reading a novel that makes you cry or makes you sort of depressed. Those sorts of things that aren't traditionally considered happy can actually, I think, improve your the your overall well-being and your sense of psychological richness. Hmm. And I even wonder if this whole experience of sort of 
reevaluating our lives might help us all come out on the end a little bit more psychologically rich just because it is such a unique situation. Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time. We so appreciate this conversation on all the wide and varied topics. This yes. was just terrific. Thank you. I, I had a I lot of it. fun. I have no idea how this <laughs> with it with it takeaway nugget is, but I had a lot of fun. <laughs> I think there are multiple takeaway a lot nuggets. Of hedonic, uh, hedonic pleasure coming out of this. <laughs> well, hopefully well, not because it was a struggle. Oh, there you go. I hope our listeners find the, found the same things and thank you. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you both so much. Welcome to the special edition grooving session where Tim and I groove on some ideas and concepts that were inspired by our conversation with Elizabeth. All right, Mr. Houlihan, how were you inspired? I was inspired by just talking to Elizabeth. I love talking to researchers that just care so much or they're so passionate about what they're doing. You know, she just just bubbles over with that. I like that. I care stuff really comes through in a big way well, about the passionate research. and smart, right? I mean, well, that's yeah. A, yeah, that's a plus too. Uh, yes. You know, you're passionate, but I mean, <laughs> she's passionate and smart. So that's, I love talking oh, to those that, passionate, smart people. That's a much better combination than just passionate. That's right. <laughs> Great. But to answer your question, I want to start talking about imagining your worst fears technique. No, why would I ever want to imagine my worst fear? Come on. Ah. So it struck isn't that, me. Isn't that scary? It was. That like it scares struck, you like senseless? Just talking about it just kind of made my ooh, my skin curdle. Uh, but the the idea of using imaginal exposure to desensitize us to traumatic experience is, is a really, really important. First of all, it's it's psychologically sound. There's a lot of good research on it. And it's important to remember that if you reach adulthood, you've probably had some really bad challenges, big challenges in your life. Uh, maybe not on an objective level, but at least on a subjective level, I could think back through my own life and say, whoa, that was really, really bad. And if I made it through that, using imaginal exposure to go back and say, you can do this, you can get through this, I think is a really, really cool technique to think about for people who are kind of on the edge. Yeah, I I know it's been used in cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Particularly in phobias, in using oh, yeah. this imaginative um, exposure to overcome those types of phobias. Now, it's not as good. They say it's not as good as being you know exposed live. So if you're afraid of spiders, imagining spiders versus actually having you know spiders there um, to overcome this, to get accustomed and overcome that fear, it's not there. But in a pandemic situation, uh, you don't want to expose yourself to the virus. So this is <laughs> right, a really right. good way right. of, of doing that. And I think there's some value in thinking through that. It's counterintuitive to a certain degree. Like I don't want to think about my worst fears. And yet by kind of pushing that down, it's the pink elephant thing that we talked about. It mm -hmm. oftentimes re uh, reappears bigger, worse, more, more uh, painful, more impactful than if we were just to address it and say, Hey, this is the this is the case. This is the worst case. So now what's, you know, if, if that's it and I can imagine myself coming through that, then I'm 
probably going to be okay. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty. That is pretty great. Uh, can I just keep riffing on this? Because uh, the second thing that that she talked about that I really liked was about the framing of the way we think about things. Messaging and um, and, and framing is really really important, right? Because uh, we're all going to have different points of view, and in a, a, a magnificently uh, unpredictable situation, we're going to have changes. Things are going to change. And so even the experts are going to say one thing one day and then and then change things. But the messaging could certainly improve receptivity overall to, mm-hmm. you know, we I think we've talked about this in the past, but don't touch your face is a much inferior. <laughs> yeah. So now you're touching your face. It's a it's an inferior message to keep your hands in your pocket. Mm-hmm. You know, keep, you know, put your hands in your pockets is a really great message. And that automatically takes care of the touching your face. But as soon as you say, don't touch your face, we got the, what is it? The, the pink elephant effect that you talk about? Yeah. <laughs> it's the thing that you, you're, you're priming your brain to touch your face, right? So those yeah. are, those are some things. I, I think it was really also very interesting and just in the framing aspect of, like wearing masks and this idea that she brought up of, you know, in the 1918 uh, influenza, the, the flu of, of 1918, oh, that yeah. that men were the ones who didn't wear masks. And right. it was because they thought it was uh, not masculine enough. And so then they reframed that to save your country by wearing a mask yeah. uh, and it became patriotic. We have not done a good job in framing our responses for this. And you can see it in uh, the political atmosphere around wearing a mask, which is, it should not be a political statement. This should be a safety statement that is just based on the damn facts. And part of that comes into the politics of, of all of this, but part of it comes into how we message it. How do we frame it? Right. So. Yeah, it, it could have been more like don't mess with Texas to, you know, to reduce the amount of littering. It could have been patriots wear masks, yeah. pa- you know, pa- you know, pa- uh, patriots uh, get vaccinated, patriots uh, stay at home. You know, there, there could be a whole series of things framed in a, in a way that is positive and easily adaptable to the changing conditions as well. But right. that's not the world well, that we're living in. But you bring up another point. You just said adaptable, right? And this is one of the pieces that I took from this is that we are very adaptable. We have been adapting, um, right? We have been adapting in the way that we approach things and how we cope with things and various different things, but that we're also going to have to be adaptable moving forward. And the same answers that we had a month ago aren't the same answers that we have today and they won't be today today's answers won't be the same answers that we have a month from now and so we have to be flexible we have to have that adaptation aspect and as humans we are we are very adaptable which has been one of the surprise not surprising it's it's highlighted the fact for me of how adaptable we are as humans and it just is it's amazing to me it's one of the bright spots of, that i really love about um being what human. I've seen from humanity. Yeah. What I've seen from, from humanity is, is how adaptive we are and, and how creative we are in, in these situations. So, yeah. What, Kurt, what else struck you? What else uh, caught your attention in our conversation with Elizabeth? Well, 
she talked about this sense of control, it, both mostly because she's talked about making lists and routines. Yeah. And she talked about oh, how yeah. she loved making lists, right? Uh, there's, there's a big element of lists that are about control. I can see what I have to do. I check it off and I am done with it. It is a control piece. And in this time, in the uncertainty that surrounds all of these factors that are going on, control is really important. And so having a sense of control uh, can really help. Uh, absolutely. And the routines are, are really important as well for us to think about. Uh, and this is something that's come up in past conversations, but having start and stop times to your workday, having using routines to establish when I do certain things, I'm going to stop doing that and do something else. The routines can be milestone based or time based. And uh, it's important to be reminded that routines help us feel comfortable right and and reduces all that cognitive labor cognitive you know calorie burning and puts us back into system 1 thinking rather than system 2 so the better our routines the easier life is basically yeah and that's not a bad thing in these times right yeah so yeah i think uh, there's also uh, one other aspect that i i she kind of brought up and it's, it's, it's important to me is that there's this is a time to reevaluate regular life, to get out of the status quo. And whether that be in formulating new routines, whether that be in just re-looking at your life priorities, we've talked about that with others as well. This is a huge, massive change across the entire globe. And in, in times of change, we we can use those to reassess what we want to be or really look at what's important to us. And I think this is a big time for many people to be able to take that opportunity to say, is this really the path that I want to continue going down? And if not, let's use this time in order to readjust that and to reevaluate and to get out of the status quo. listening to the special episode of Behavior Grooves. We hope that you found it interesting and insightful. If you liked it, please let others know. We think that the topic is important and maybe we can help in educating people about how behavioral science can help us all out in this current craziness that we are going through. Also, please let us know if you have any thoughts or ideas that would be helpful or that we could share. You can reach us through the Connect tab on the Behavioral Grooves website at www.behavioralgrooves.com or through Twitter. I'm at T. Houlihan and Kurt is at What Motivates. We really do love hearing from you. And this topic is one that spurs lots of emotions and thought. As part of our mission, we want to expand and inform the community of people who think about positively applying behavioral science to life. One way that happens is through leaving reviews. If you think this podcast is beneficial and should grow, we would really appreciate to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast server you use. It only takes a few minutes and goes a long way to boost us in the algorithms that are used to generate search results. Also, please check out the show notes. We are linking to a number of resources articles, podcasts, newsletters that we vetted to bring good facts and ideas around COVID-19 and the coronavirus, its impact and ways that we can help slow down the spread. There is a lot of information that's being pushed out to everyone each day, and we are weeding through it to find good stuff so that you don't have to. We truly appreciate you listening. Now go out and wash your hands. 